The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. A series on seeing things clearly, right? Specifically the three characteristics. This morning, my topic is virtue, which is also about seeing things clearly. In both uh, San Jose and my group in Morgan Hill, we've been using this book, Buddha Is As Buddha Does, by Lama Surya Das, to study the paramis, or paramitas, the perfections, as they're translated. And uh, virtue is the second of the paramis the first being generosity. You may have heard that in Southeast Asia, before students are taught meditation, they must perfect the practice of generosity and the practice of virtue. It's said if you're not leading a virtuous life, you can't meditate. (laughs) Here in the West, most of us come to this practice for the meditation. So we start with meditation, and then we add generosity and virtue. But virtue is a very foundational practice. Did anybody go to the practice day on virtue? Yeah? Good. Then you can add. Um... So the paramitas are translated as perfections, but I actually prefer the word practice. Perfect has um, (laughs) a lot of baggage, (laughs) a lot of misconceptions. I, I actually don't think there's such a thing as perfect. What's perfect for you is different from what's perfect for me. So I think practices... Uh, is more what it's about. These are said to be the deepest qualities of the heart that the Buddha, as a bodhisattva, he was a bodhisattva in many lifetimes before becoming the Buddha. Do you know the term bodhisattva? It's not from Theravada, it's from the Mahayana tradition. And simply, it's a person that is willing to delay his or her own awakening, enlightenment, until all beings can be awakened. Um, it's, It's a beautiful ideal. And here in the West, we don't make so many distinctions between Theravada and Mahayana, so... In, uh, in a lot of ways, we have adopted the idea of the bodhisattva, generally as one who is selfless and works tirely, tirelessly for the benefit of all beings. So the Buddha in his lifetimes as a bodhisattva was developing these qualities that would allow him then in the lifetime we know about, to become the Buddha. His previous lives are said to be recorded in the Jataka tales. You may have heard of the Jataka tales, which are told as animal stories. They're wonderful stories for children, but they're also wonderful stories for us. Um, A little bit like the Aesop's fables, you know, they all have a teaching a lesson, but they're told um, from the animal world, from how animals interact with each other, which I think makes it more interesting and sometimes easier to understand. So there are, I can't remember, 270 Jataka tales, something like that, a lot. So the Buddha had a lot of lifetimes prior to becoming the Buddha. We do our best to develop the paramitas uh, in this lifetime as best we can. 
So virtue, or sila in Pali, morality, ethics, as I said, is a very foundational practice. And unlike some other traditions that have rules that you must follow and they're sort of black and white, in Buddhist practice, we are called upon to work with these practices and not just follow a rule, but really see them completely and see them as they affect our lives. In one section, uh, Lama Surya Das says, the precepts are defined by the context of our lives. And uh, sometimes people think that makes them less important or less serious. I find just the opposite. That because there's not a prescription, there's not a black and a white, do this, don't do that, do that, don't do this. Um, It is incumbent upon each of us to really study the precept or whatever virtue we're talking about and see in each instance of our lives how that relates. So virtue is really an attitude or a way of being, a way of living. It's not just a rule that we follow on Monday night or (laughs) Sunday morning or whatever, but it permeates our lives. One of the nicest compliments I I think I ever received many years ago, I was with somebody, I don't know, at the beach or something where there was a parking lot, and we came back to the car, and somebody had dropped something, and I don't even remember what it was, a piece of clothing or a wallet or something of value. And it, it was just in the parking lot, and I reached down and got it and set it up on the curb. You know, so that whoever lost it would see it when they come, came back. And the person I was with just kind of looked at me and said, you're showing me a different way of living. That person's inclination might have been to take it, whatever it was. And I wasn't trying to teach, of course, or anything. It was just a natural instinct. Somebody lost something, let me put it where they can find it. And somebody else didn't have that inclination at all. So that's what I mean by it being a way of life. It's so, it becomes so ingrained in us that we can't act otherwise. It's said there comes a point in practice where you can't break a precept. It's just so much a part of you. And it's about our thoughts, our speech, and our actions. Often we think of precepts or virtue in terms of action, right action, which of course it is. But we may forget that our thought, our intentions, precedes virtuous or right action. And that speech is also a part of our wise or right action. So paying attention to the thoughts, because the thoughts in our mind affect how we act affect how we behave. So what is going on? (laughs) What are we thinking? Where, as I said during the meditation, where is our attention? 
So in order to be virtuous, to lead a virtuous life, we must be honest. We must be honest with ourselves first. (laughs) So we have to know ourselves well. So this is a practice of turning inward and knowing who we are. We can't be honest out in the world if we're not first honest with ourselves. So seeing ourselves as clearly as we can and being willing to acknowledge when we do something that maybe isn't so wise or we're not so proud of. And again, in this practice, there's no concept of sin, so we're not bad, but just acknowledging what we have done, and then recommitting, you know, agreeing to do that differently next time. One phrase that I really like is ethical intelligence. So practicing virtue requires ethical intelligence. That is, knowing and understanding the ethics. So, as you probably know, non-harming, or ahimsa, is the basis of virtuous practice. And knowing whether something is harmful or not harmful, is the basic way we determine what is skillful or not skillful, or what we're going to do or not do, or say or not not say. When something leads to harm, or we think it will lead to harm, for ourselves, as well as anyone else, or the planet, or other beings, then that is what we want to avoid. That is what we want to not do. That is not wise action. When something leads away from harm, or towards happiness, we generally say, then that's a good indication of what we do want to follow, what we do want to do. Now, of course, we can't always know, but we do our best. And that's why these are practices. So then, with the basis being non-harming or ahimsa, we have the five precepts to follow. And again, what I really appreciate about Buddhist practice is that these precepts are training precepts. They are for us to work with and develop a greater ability to live ethically. They're not absolute. They're not right-wrong. They are guidelines. They are things for us to follow in the best way that we can. And it's said that there are three, three types of sila, or virtue. One is the prohibition, and the precepts are generally stated in the prohibitory sense, or sometimes we say negative sense first. That is what we should not do. So the first one is do not kill, no taking life. And then the second type is, is the positive or the cultivating, the developing. And for um, the first precept, that is honoring or respecting, protecting life. 
which you can hear, really opens it up, doesn't it? Makes it very different from just not taking life. And then the third type of sila is service. Selfless service. So how can we serve life? How can we how can we do our best to promote life and as Tiknat Han says, prevent the taking of life? Not just ourselves, but how can we prevent others from taking life? That also adds, doesn't it, another dimension to the precept. So, of course, when we think about not taking life, um, cultivating or protecting, respecting life, all kinds of issues come up, don't they? I'll name just a few, and maybe we can explore a little bit. Um, But, of course the idea of the death penalty. That's clearly taking life. From a Buddhist perspective, that's not wise action. And um, sometimes uh, there are um, Buddhist activities (laughs) that, uh, that say to the culture, no, this is not Okay. There hasn't been an execution at San Quentin for many years, but at least three times before that, I went with others just to be a witness to the execution. And, um, you know, we didn't demonstrate, we didn't do anything, but we were there. We were a presence. We sat or stood quietly as the execution was happening. As a witness and as a way of acknowledging, for us, this is not okay. Then there's the issue of abortion. Also could be considered taking life. Um... And interesting, I think, in many Buddhist circles, we're not so black and white. (laughs) It might be taking life, but if we see the whole picture, if we understand and see clearly all the circumstances, then sometimes it might be the most compassionate, the most skillful behavior. Certainly not all the time, of course. But that's, that's the way that, that we get to wrestle with these precepts. What is the most skillful, the most compassionate, the most helpful action in this particular circumstance? You know, the idea uh, or the... What of eating meat comes up because obviously we're taking life to uh, to have meat to eat, and there again, you know, not all Buddhists are vegetarian, for sure. Mostly Buddhist functions are vegetarian. <laughs> But then people leave and go home and eat meat. At the time of the Buddha, it's my understanding, he was basically vegetarian and had his sangha be vegetarian. Um, But if somebody served meat to them, then they accepted it. Because they lived as mendicants. They lived... um, you know, from on the generosity of the laity. And so if somebody put meat in their bowl or fixed a meat dinner for them, then they ate it with gratitude. Except <laughs> if 
the animal was killed for them. If they know that it was killed for them, then they were not to eat it. But if it was, you know, just part of the family meal, then it was okay. We think about antibiotics. Antibiotics, especially broad-spectrum antibiotics, which, as we all know, are way overused these days, kill all kinds of organisms. (laughs) Sometimes they save somebody's life, or they certainly make it a lot easier. But in the doing, they kill all kinds of organisms. How about animals used in testing? Testing products. Um, A lot of that has been eliminated because of the work of animal organizations. But still, every day practically I hear, you know, they're doing such and such to mice or to rats or monkeys or whatever. Um in the service of our health. (laughs) So again, you know, where is that maybe acceptable and where is it not? So many, many things to consider with not taking life or honoring or respecting or protecting life. We have that question now actually with our earth, don't we? How do we protect our earth? I just heard, as you probably did too, that um, Stephen Hawking, the the well-known physicist, has said, we need to find another planet. Human beings need to find another planet because we are destroying this one. And we will not survive on this planet. We need to find another one. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That, that we have come to the point where we are destroying our own home. So how do we protect life? our life and the life of our home. Anybody want to comment on that? Have a question? You got it all solved, right? Okay, well, we'll have more time later. So then the second precept is that of not taking what is not freely offered, otherwise stated as not stealing. (laughs) But when we say it as not taking what is not freely offered, again, that gives it a different context, doesn't it? We often take things we don't consider that we're stealing. They're, they're right there. <laughs> but if we look at it through the lens of, is it freely offered? That might be different. So um, I like to walk, and I have a dog, so I walk a lot. And uh, I pick up money that I find on the ground. So early on, when I was learning about this precept, you know, and some things were said, oh, well, (laughs) if there's a penny, a dime, a dollar on the ground, is that freely offered? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Probably not freely offered. I mean, somebody probably dropped it. That's not the same as freely offered, right? The universe, the universe there you go. 
Well, I do pick it up, and I have a jar, and I put all the money that I find in this jar. And then at the end of, you know, a year, two years, whenever the jar gets full, I take it to West Valley Community Services. So I figure that I'm sort of, you know, I'm the conduit. I'm just moving it from the ground. To <laughs> but, but then you can refine all of these precepts. So then I began to notice, well, if it's on the sidewalk, that's one thing. If it's on somebody's driveway, that is a different thing. Or somebody's grass. I used to just pick it up, you know. Now I think, well, that's on their property. That's probably not the universe offering it to me. (laughs) So it may seem like a small thing, you know, in one way it is, but in another way, this is is the attitude that we're asked to adopt, that we really look carefully at what we're doing. It reminds me of Lama Suryadas's title of this chapter, the impeccable virtue of ethical self-discipline. That says a lot, doesn't it? I love that word impeccable. Not that it means perfect, but that it means we practice in every moment. That we do our best at all times to practice ethical Self-discipline. And it does take self-discipline sometimes, doesn't it? To practice impeccably. So then, what is the cultivating or development of not taking what is not freely offered? Developing generosity. And that's a huge practice. A whole other topic. A whole other uh, talk but developing generosity rather than taking, we give. Huge practice, very rewarding practice. So then the third precept. Now sometimes the third and fourth are stated in different order. I don't I don't know why, but I like to say the third precept uh, is that of speech, wise speech. Simply not lying. But the Buddha suggested other um, factors to consider. So certainly whether our speech is is, um, truthful or honest or not. But also, is it harsh? Or is it kind? Is it timely? Is it appropriate or relevant, not just, you know, out of thin air? Can the other person hear it? Because if the other person isn't open or people, then why say it? It's not going to be useful. And is it Gossip or idle speech. So, of course, the, the development, the cultivating, is cultivating wise speech. And this is huge, <laughs> isn't it? All of us, all of us say things at times that is not wise. We probably didn't mean to. It just comes out. But it's a lifelong practice, developing wise speech. Being sure that our speech, to the best of our ability, is not harmful. That it's not going to harm someone, including ourselves. And that means setting the intention to use wise speech, to not harm, and being very aware of our speech. Being very aware afterwards, well, before 
during the time we're speaking and then afterwards the effect that it may have had. Uh, Undoubtedly, all of you, as I, have spoken, um, maybe quickly, and then later reflected on it and thought, that wasn't so skillful. How could I say that better, wiser, in a more helpful way, or maybe not say it at all? So sometimes not speaking (laughs) is the most wise speech. And then knowing when to speak and when not to speak is definitely a practice. Because sometimes it's very important that we speak. When there is something unethical, uh, something that we need to speak up about, then it's important to speak. Then not speaking can be just as harmful as speaking. So developing the wisdom to know when to speak, when it's really important that we speak up, and when not to speak. And a big part of that, of course, is wise listening or deep listening. We can't we can't maybe speak wisely if we don't listen deeply. So often that's where unwise speech comes from, isn't it? We're not really listening. It's so easy, especially if we disagree with someone, to hear the words, but meanwhile we're busy formulating our answer in our own mind, and we miss, because maybe they're not saying what we thought they were going to say. And so our response can be inappropriate because it's not really on point to what was being said. So cultivating our skills of listening. Sometimes um, in our San Jose group, once a month we have a discussion and we use the council process. We use a talking stick except we happen to have a ball, but it's the same idea. And we pass it from person to person to person. And only the person holding that ball can speak. And everybody else practices deep listening. And the person speaking speaks from their own experience, their own heart. Um, We don't allow what's called in the anonymous programs crosstalk. We don't allow people to argue with each other or uh, question each other, you know, question um, challenging, but to just speak from their perspective. And it's a wonderful practice. Everybody loves that week of the month (laughs) because it's a way of sharing and it's a very respectful way of hearing everybody. So then the fourth precept is that of not abusing sexuality. Or in the positive, the cultivating, honoring our sexuality and that of our partner. Honoring our bodies and that of our partner. And not only ours and our partners, but anyone else that might be involved. And again, that really opens it up, doesn't it? So if we're engaging in some kind of sexuality that is affecting others in some way, that would not be honoring or respecting our sexuality. So being aware of how we might be affecting others. Um, You know, something like an affair or pornography or... You probably can think of of, of lots of things. What is not going to lead to harm of anybody? And... 
I think it's important to add that there is nothing in Buddhist um, understanding or principles that suggests that any form of sexuality is not okay. Um, Sexuality is a healthy part of human life. And so there's nothing that says this is okay and that is not okay. Um, But there is the injunction to be respectful, to honor, to protect, and to be sure that beyond ourselves and our partner, we're not harming anybody else. And then the fifth, the last of the five precepts, that of not intoxicating the mind. This one can be huge also. (laughs) They all are. They're all lifelong practices. So for some people, that means not taking any intoxicants, no alcohol, no drugs, etc. For most people, it means being aware. Being aware of the effect of whatever you're ingesting on the mind. So many many Buddhists, most that I know, do drink alcohol. But they're very aware of the effect that it has on the mind. Someone like Thich Nhat Hanh says, because of the harm done by alcohol, he thinks we should not ingest it at all. We should not drink at all. And you can appreciate that. You can understand whether you do it or not. Uh, you can understand that, that perspective. And then the cultivating, developing is cultivating a clear mind. And I like the emphasis on cultivating a clear mind. That's what this practice is about, isn't it? Developing a clear mind. So then, uh, again, someone like Thich Nhat Hanh includes many more things than, um, than alcohol or drugs, but things like pornography or shopping or (laughs) movies or books or anything that we do that is not cultivating the mind, that that is clouding the mind, clouding our judgment. And we all know there are many things besides alcohol that do that, right? So paying attention to the effect of whatever we're doing, how, how that affects our mind, how that affects our clarity, our ability to see things clearly. So that's basically the five precepts that we have in our practice. Thich Nhat Hanh has 14. Zen has 10. But they're basically expansions of these five. Um, And I think just from what I've said, you can see how with each one we can really expand them. And we could make many, many uh, precepts out of each one. So, uh, again, another phrase that Lama Suryadas uses that I like, the moral ambiguity of human existence. I like that because that, that's what it's about, isn't it? The moral ambiguity of human existence. There was a time when I was younger that I wanted things to be clear. I wanted to know exactly what I should do and shouldn't do, and then I could follow it. 
And now I'm older and hopefully wiser, and I appreciate the moral ambiguity of human existence. That's really what it is, isn't it? There's not a definite right-wrong in every situation all the time. Um, It depends on so many factors. And I want to, again, impress that that doesn't make ethics less important or less serious. It, in fact, requires more of us, (laughs) more of our um, wisdom and practice to be able to make the judgments in any particular situation. So we have a few minutes. I would love to hear from you. Comments, questions, ideas? Mm-hmm. How do we work through... I, I think Randy's going to... Thank you. How do we approach moral ambiguity in society, in working with others? I know you mentioned the talking stick as one way, but as we each may understand our own sense of and work through um, the context, but we, of course, live and work with each other, which may have very, very different opinions on what that is. How do we come together? Thank you. Yeah, that's a big question, isn't it? One we're all living right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, I think listening is so very important. Listening and with the intent of understanding. We can listen, but again, in our mind, we're arguing, we're debating, we're (laughs) making the other person wrong. Can we listen so that we really hear the other person's perspective? You know, if we went around here, we all might have a slightly different perspective on any one thing. That doesn't make any one of us wrong. It's just the reality of life, right? We, we come in with different um, karma, with different personalities. We have different experiences in our lives. We all uh, learn and make judgments from our experiences. So, of course, we would have slightly different takes on things. If we let go of this notion of right and wrong, or good and bad, but, oh, that's how you see it. That's how you understand it. Putting ourselves in somebody else's shoes, walking a mile in somebody else's moccasins, I think that is so valuable. It's one of the most valuable ways, I think, of, of bridging differences. And what's important to remember is that doesn't mean that I have to agree with you. I may not. I may never agree with you. But I can understand from your perspective. So, so that's, you know, in a listening and understanding way. But I think maybe part of your question includes how do we... How do we make laws in our society that fit for everyone, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? It's very challenging. Um, Especially when any one group thinks they're right and they have the answer, the only answer, and therefore they need to impose it on everybody else. Buddhism, of course, doesn't come from that perspective. We don't, we don't feel that we have the answers. Um, you know, the Dalai Lama says clearly that there are many paths to the truth. There are many ways, and um, we must respect each person's path. So we do our best 
we advocate for what we think is best. But also there's a very deep understanding in Buddhist practice that we let go of the results. We aren't in control of what happens. That doesn't mean we do any less. We still are impeccable with our actions. But we don't have the big picture. We're not in charge. And so ultimately we have to let go. It's like metta, right? We do metta for everybody. But we're not attached to any particular result. We might do metta for someone who is, you know, in great difficulty. And we wish them health or safety or, or relief or whatever. But we can't control it. We wish it for them. But we don't know what will happen, so we have to let go. Does that... Exactly, exactly, right. And I would say even more than on one-to-one, you know, on a larger scale. Yeah, respect is so important, yeah, and so often missing. Yes? Yeah, you mentioned a little bit about abortion. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, uh, what's the Buddhist perspective of abortion? Um, Well, nowadays, with the technology we we know if the baby is going to have problem or the fetus whether it would have down syndrome or other um, problems mm-hmm. so um, would it be okay to abort the baby or the fetus if we knew that it would be born with Down syndrome. So I can't speak for all of Buddhism. <laughs> That's a huge topic. Tan Jeff would say, the Buddha said, no killing, period. However, <laughs> I think in just that example, there are many, many things to consider. Um, Number one is that Down syndrome is not so awful. Uh, I have a grandson who has cerebral palsy and uh, cognitive delay along with it. So, um, so I have seen many of his friends, you know, and associates that have Downs, and they're wonderful. They're wonderful little kids. Now, you could say something else, some much more um, uh, limiting, whatever, uh, uh, disability or development or whatever. You know, that's where we all have to think about it. There's no one answer. The Buddha didn't say, do this, don't do that, (laughs) or do it now, but don't do it there. So for some people, whether it's down or some other syndrome, they would prefer to have the baby, give it the best life they could for as long as possible. For other people, it would be totally unthinkable they would not be able to, there would be so much whatever animosity or upset, they would never be able to carry through that pregnancy. So, again, what's the most compassionate? What's the most, we could say, ethical 
thing to do. And that's where there's no absolute. It would depend on the people, the conditions, what is life going to be like for that baby. Um, all those things. Does that help? No? <laughs> okay, I'm still confused. Yeah, I know, because it's confusing. Yeah, it makes me think of animal euthanasia. You know, that's a big one. And sometimes my experience is that sometimes euthanasia has become too quick, too easy. Um, I have euthanized, and it's hard. <laughs> For me, it's very hard, and it's complex. You know, and it depends on circumstances. My preference is always to allow the animal to die naturally. Six months ago, I euthanized a cat. And the vet said to me, I know you want her to die naturally, but she's not. <laughs> and that was sort of a wake-up call to me, you know, that I was holding on to this idea that she must die naturally. And the vet thought it was way past time. Well, I don't know that it was way past time, and I, I will never know if I did what was right or not. Many, many people are absolutely sure I did the right thing. I did what I thought was best, you know, at that particular time with all the support I had. And I'm open. I'm always open. I don't know if it was best or not. But, it, you know, I did the best I could do at that particular moment. And maybe at another time, I will make a different choice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish we had a lot more time because I think it's very, very interesting. I like this kind of discussion and debate where we can bring up, you know, so many facets and ideas and there's no one answer. If I impart anything, I think that would be it. That... Um, and there is not, in Buddhist understanding, one way of doing things, one answer. We each have to look within ourselves as honestly as we can and make the very best decision in that particular circumstance. Knowing that others may disagree, knowing that another time we might make a different decision, but that's the best that we can decide at that particular moment. So thank you all, and have a lovely Thanksgiving. And actually, I'll see you next week as well. <laughs>